So today we're going to be talking about my uh, trip to France, and I was able to spend eight days there. It is my fourth time there, so I feel like I'm becoming a little bit more comfortable with, uh, I guess you'd say, the culture and how things are done, and knowing more people each time. It's always fun to get back and, and meet people again, and just to see what they're up to and what they're doing. Uh, but I, I want to really recognize my, uh, I guess I would say my French counterpart in a way, Frederic Thomas. And if you ever get to uh, hear him or see him, he's just a wealth of information. He uh, has written several books, unfortunately, none of them in English, but um, he's been really active with cover crops for the past 25 years. And he has a magazine, uh, I believe it's a monthly magazine that he puts out, but that is based on a group that he formed. Uh, the acronym is uh, B-A-S-E, BAS, and I'm not sure what that stands for in French, but there, there's over 1,100 members now throughout the European Union. And basically, in one way, he's kind of doing it like, like what I'm doing here with this innovators group, uh, where he uh, you know, attracts people who are very like-minded, very progressive with cover crops. And he also has a farm that he does farm, about 200 acres. So... Uh, he certainly knows, you know, the realities of of uh, farming, and then in the context of trying new things with cover crops. So we we share a lot in common. I really have felt uh, really strongly connected with him, and just always a I always learn uh, some new things that he's doing, and it's just really good to to connect. Uh, one of the things I, I just want to at the outset here uh, talk about a few things in perspective. In in France, probably the the biggest thing going on right now is in two weeks, the European Union in in Brussels, Belgium, is going to vote whether or not to allow member countries to ban the use of glyphosate, and that is that's not a joke. Um, I, I I actually was kind of rudely uh, awakened to this the very first farmer that I met. Uh, went to a farm, and I stepped out, and we said hello. His question to me was, uh, what would you do if you could not use glyphosate? And frankly, I've never really strongly uh, considered that. And uh, I realized the seriousness of it then when I questioned, because I had heard that this was a, a rumor. I thought it was more of a rumor, but it's actually a reality, and it is a very very strong topic of debate. Um, so uh, what what will happen if the European Union passes a resolution that member countries can ban, all that means is each country then can decide whether or not they want to or not. Uh, but France is very susceptible to, to banning glyphosate just because of the political uh, winds, you might say, uh, that are that is a reality there, and uh, what I have through my week there and actually questioning this a little stronger uh, in in the country of France the the organic movement is strongly subsidized uh, it equates to one hundred and fifty dollars an acre per year, and that is correct one hundred and fifty dollars per acre 
is uh, is subsidized uh, if you're if you're uh, doing organic agriculture, and very little subsidies are given to cover crops or no tillage. The the general thinking is that no tillage means high uses of herbicides, and that is not good. Uh, so they're they're kind of leaning that way uh, in that in that debate. Uh, now, when this farmer asked me what I would do if I couldn't use glyphosate, um, I, I told him that I have greatly reduced my use of it. And yes, glyphosate has been way overused. I think we all agree with that. Uh, but but to actually think of the reality of taking glyphosate out of your arsenal is is uh, is pretty interesting because uh, I don't think they have even the use of uh, gramoxone that we have either. There's very little to no uh, burn down type herbicides available. So uh, it was in that context this week. Of course, it's two weeks away. So every meeting I was at, I heard discussions about this, and so I just pass that along as just something for inform informative. Uh, information, but nonetheless, it's a very real question for those guys over there. Uh, another thing that always strikes me is farming up and down the slopes. And uh, this this picture here that I have up is actually sunflowers about ready to harvest. It, it looked to me like you had a little better seed emergence going one way or the other. I'm not sure which is best, but you can kind of see that pattern there. I'm guessing it's 25%, but uh, nonetheless, almost without exception, fields are farmed up and down the slope. And I remember I asked this uh, already, why they do that, because particularly where I'm from here in, in, in Pennsylvania, we, we mainly contour our farms. And granted, some of this stuff is pretty steep, um, but... Um, I, I was I, I asked the question, well, you know, why do you go up and down the slope and and even moldboard plowing? I mean, I, I saw a tractor plowing up a slope like this, and I wasn't able to get a picture of it. But when I asked why up and down the slope, my the answer was, well, it drains better. And I'm like, no kidding. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to show you some no-till farming up and down the slopes then later, but later on. But um, I was particularly spent most of my time this time in the southeastern quadrant of France, and I hadn't been in that area before. Uh, they do get uh, about 30, 25 to 30 inches of rain, so less than a lot of us. Uh, I know more than some of us here, but uh, but they do have uh, every year or every one or two or three times a year, I ask, they do have intensive rainfall events where there is erosion. So uh, it, it, it may be not as intense as some of us experience, but no doubt about it, erosion is a concern. So, uh, again, just showing you some of the things I saw, but it's really good to see cover crops and reduced or no tillage is expanding. Uh, just a little bit of perspective. Uh, this uh, picture that you see here is actually an old grain storage. They have these setting around. Some are out in the middle of fields. Some are uh, in the edges of fields. Uh, they would throw the grain up in there by hand, and then back underneath it and unload it. Um, I don't know if any of these are even being used, but one thing about you got to know about Europeans is they they like to keep their old buildings, and uh, so you'll see this stuff dotted around. I probably saw 15 or 20 of these. Uh, some of them actually do go to the ground as well for even greater storage. But 
nonetheless, it, it, I, have, I have never was, it never was pointed out to me before what these were. I guess I never asked, but anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's some, uh, some old style grain storage. Well, some of the new things that I've been introduced to is, uh, one of them, I'm going to share a few of them quickly. One of them is agroforestry, the concept of, uh, bringing in perennial trees in, in field cropping situations. Uh, I still need a little bit more explaining how this works. Uh, the, the, and again, it's in the name of diversity. I think we all agree diversity is good. How do you actually make this work? Uh, and what are the correct species of trees? Of course, it's a long-term investment. You would probably want to own the land to do this kind of thing. But I saw, nonetheless, I'm seeing more of it uh, each time I go. Uh, again, here's another one here that was just, uh, just planted and you can see the, the fresh, uh, you know, just where the, the trees are protected in those little tubes. But, but this is just how it looks. And uh, actually here was one of the rare times where the, where the rows weren't going up and down the hill. But, uh, nonetheless, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I just want to introduce to you this little agroforestry concept. Because it seems to be expanding slowly, I find it I find it very interesting uh, at this point anyway. <clears throat> so uh, one of the some of the things that are very typical to what I've been used to is is the importance of doing soil pits in the fields, and I was in a lot of these during my week there, and uh, saw some interesting subsoils that I've not uh, been used to seeing before. But notice in this case here. This was actually an oilseed rape field that had been harvested the end of June and a, a very complex multi-species cover with sunflowers and sorghum sedan and a bunch of other things uh, growing right there. This farmer, actually the farmer, um, that's Frederic there in the blue shirt, the farmer is kind of uh, with the shorts on on the, on the right side, is the owner of the land. Uh, this is his second year of cover crops, and he had a, he was asking a lot of questions. But the the point of it was, uh, he he was just a, a new farmer, just you know getting used, getting getting his feet wet, so to speak, uh, with this. And whenever you do these soil pits, it's so good to have people who know what they're looking for, because when you have a excavator that digs a hole. You don't usually see a whole lot until you start picking away and looking and to see the earthworm channels uh, and the earthworms there, you know, just like I've been familiar with before. Uh, but it's it's difficult when you find earthworm cocoons. Over here on the right is an earthworm cocoon that we found. I thought that was pretty cool to be able to find that because that is indeed, you know, what we're after. And just to think, you know, why earthworms can proliferate when you don't till is because you don't disturb these guys you don't you don't destroy them uh, with tillage um about now speaking of tillage it was kind of ironic uh, i met up we met up with this guy actually one of the farms we visited was this guy here on the left who happens to be the 2015 runner-up france plowing champion now you know that seems like uh kind of an oxymoron there almost but he switched to no-till four years ago and is a hundred percent no-till but he qualified for the national champ plowing championships five times in last uh, 2015 he was the runner-up 
So uh, it's kind of become a little bit of a, I won't say a joke, but he's very open about it, that he doesn't plow anything on his farm. And he told me he does it, first of all, he's good at it, but it's it, for him he considers it an art, uh, and he's pretty good at it. So so that's what he does. But uh, they said that the first time, he he said to me the first time, well, that when he won in 20, when he got the runner up in 2015, they said to your farm must be very neatly plowed. He said, well, actually, I don't plow at all on my farm. He used that opportunity to share about no-till and cover crops at the national plowing contest. So I thought that was pretty interesting, and it was kind of cool to meet a guy like that. That's uh, You might say he's still, he's still involved, so he can kind of be a, a voice for no-till in a context of where it's uh, totally opposite of uh, no-till. But anyway... Here's a picture of some of his fields. Uh, this is some, again, fairly steep ground that would be uh, difficult even to go on the side of that on the contour, but this is some of his no-till fields right there. And in the foreground, you can see some buckwheat cover crops growing. Uh, but just um, just a younger guy that's really energetic, really committed, and, and so forth. Uh, this is uh, one of the soil pits we dug on his farm. This was a oilseed rape field that had been harvested late June, and this is some of the regrowth here that you see uh, that you see growing. That's what that is, and uh, it was it was um, you know oilseed rape is I think the second or third most popular cash crop in France. Um, at least it's right up there. So there's a lot of this, and uh, we know it more as a cover crop, at least in more of the, in the states. Uh, the northern areas of the states in Canada are familiar with canola, which is essentially the same thing. But, you know, I was, again, I was impressed uh, with the with the roots that they can generate. Uh, this picture was taken here, I'm, as I recall, about two to three feet down in this uh, volunteer oilseed rape root. So I really think that we're on to something with these uh, oilseed rape, or dwarf Essex rape is a common variety we use for cover crops that I'm more familiar with. And again, I just want to share that I think that it's kind of like, it's kind of a spinoff of the popular, the radish, which has very aggressive rooting. It's a brassica, somewhat related, but in order to be able to plant later and to survive the winter in many places, this is a very good cover crop uh, to be used. <clears throat> spent quite a bit of time in the fields, as you can already tell. And in this field here, the cover crop was a little thin. Uh, the, the farmer said that next year he will plant a little bit thicker. But that's the reason uh, we attend these uh, field days to, to learn. And again, someone that was fairly new to cover cropping, so just learning the, the rope, so to speak, of that. You can see a little mustard is mixed in there. Uh, just a little bit of uh, of a sorghum sedan. There's some radishes and some, um, actually, if you really look closely, there's some black oats. They do like black oats. I will just say that that is quite common. And I'm going to share some other ones that are more that are more common a little bit later on. But uh, certainly mixed species is, is, is without exception, I would say, very, very uh, predominant. And some of the... You know, it's, it's it's interesting how farmers are. Uh, you, conventional farmers, I'm saying here, you know, people who are, I'll just say, not into cover crops. They they like to show off their machinery, 
and that's kind of cool. But those of us who are into this whole cover crop movement, I think we're all kind of in a way proud of our mixes and our seeds. And it's interesting how I was on several farms where they're like, come on back here. I want to show you my mix. And they open up a bag and, and there, there I took a picture of one right there. Um, you know, all kinds of different things mixed together there. So it's kind of interesting to experience a somewhat different culture from a nationality standpoint, but to experience a very similar culture in a cover crop standpoint. So it just makes you feel good when you, when you get out of your, your area and you see other farms that the principles are working but sometimes they look uh, dramatically different. And, and of course, you know, being in a, in, in a different area and being in France, if you've ever been to Europe, you do see castles. And um, I had to show you this picture here. I actually toured this castle the last time I was there three years ago. It's uh, 498 years old now. The 500th anniversary is coming up soon. But it's just amazing to see some of the architectural that was done so many hundred years ago. And as you can see, standing perfectly, perfectly straight. I mean, you can walk all through that, all the way up into the top of that. Uh, it's been well maintained. Uh, but uh, one of the, I, th I think some of the traditions in, I'll just say France, uh, run deep. And, um, and in one way it's, it's uh, certainly is, has a, is a good thing about it. Now, uh, the, the past time I was there, I visited a farmer in the neighborhood of that castle. But this time, they uh, asked him if, or somehow he got a deal with the castle to, that the, they, they pay for his sheep to come over and graze on the grounds. So there you can see the castle in the background, and in the foreground is his sheep. And they pay him to bring his sheep over there. So kind of cool to see that innovation. Here's a cover cropping, uh, I'll call him a reduced tillage. He's not 100% no-till farmer, but absolutely into cover crops. Uh, to to, to kind of see a little, a little thing he has going there. And it just goes to show that each of us need to look for those little niches that we can uh, take advantage of opportunities. In this case, he has been using sheep on his farm to graze cover crops and also some cattle as well. I don't think I've any pictures here about that, but it's just kind of cool to see that relationship there where he's got a nice little niche there with the, with the local castle. Um, so uh, one other thing now, switching gears a little bit, is um, Frederic uh, Thomas, who I introduced at the beginning, basically the host for my first part of my trip, uh, he was able to pick up this year some neighboring ground that hadn't been farmed for, for I, I believe, decades. Uh, and it was abandoned simply because it was farmed out. And if you – I've been to his farm now each, every time I've been there, and he always has to take me to his neighbors to see the contrast of soil under his management compared to their management. The area that he lives in – uh, basically there are still fields just that have been growing up in shrubs and trees because they've been farmed out. Now, looking at this picture here, I want to explain a few things because to me it was, it was very interesting. Uh, so again, very poor fertility. He has some access to some compost 
And so to start this ground, to, to kind of get it back to farmable conditions, it needed fertility. I mean, the, um, the, the rates of everything were almost down to, to nothing. So in the very foreground there, well, first of all, this whole field was planted uh, with, a, with a, a, a pretty simple mix of cover crops. You can see buckwheat there. But where he spread his compost, and there's a little story here, and in a way it kind of made a point. It was, it was unfortunate. His hired man uh, didn't hook the PTO up. He, he put the 540 PTO instead of the 1,000 PTO, and the, the spinner spreader did not spin out the compost like it was supposed to, so you kind of saw these streaks through the field. And here's where he started at the beginning, you know, kind of left out a little bit of a pile. But the difference between what's in the foreground here of almost nothing growing to where they had fertility, tremendous growth. And <clears throat> we had quite a bit of discussion on this because – when you're teaching farmers how to transition to a to um, less fertility, uh, that's the more of the angle that I'm coming from anyway. We're generally dealing with 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 higher fertilities in the context of cover crops. But when you're teaching from low fertility, you have to have fertility to get the thing started, get it jump started, and getting it going. And you can do this very quickly, particularly if you have something like compost or manure or something like that. So it was just a, a really vivid example, and I felt like it helped me be a little bit more adamant about when I run across farmers who happen to have low fertility or or starting like renting a, a field from a neighbor or something like that, that you you know in order to get some of the biological benefits that we're after, we're going to have to fix the fertility. That's what he kept saying. You need to fix the fertility to get all the biological benefits. And this is in the context now. I want to be clear. This is in the context of low fertility fields. But there you can see the difference was indeed striking. Okay, now back to more of a uh, normal agriculture um, I, I should have, I guess, put some arrows in there to some of these different plants. Uh, if you know what you're looking for, there's oilseed rape. This is the cash crop. This is in one of Frederick's uh, no-till fields. You can still see the straw there from wheat. No-till planted oilseed rape. Uh, mixing with it, sunflowers, fava beans. There's a little um, common vetch in there. Uh, probably a couple other things. But this has become quite popular in France, where the cash crop is oilseed rape, and then you grow companion crops or companion cover crops with it that will winter kill. And uh, so it depends which area you're located, how to what degree this stuff will winter kill. There's also some you could use that you could spray out with herbicides. But this is becoming very popular especially with oil seed rape and growing companion crops with it to get the crop out of the ground, get it going, providing some fertility, providing a little weed control because of a little bit more of uh, suppression due to shading and so forth. So uh, this is something I've become more of a student on. I, um, I guess I'm just thinking now there are some cover crop companies, and I actually took a picture of the bag. There's cover crop companies that will produce a mix to be added to oilseed rape. In other words, they call it 
companion mix. That's literally the word, companion mix uh, for the oilseed rape. So just uh, trying to figure some of this out, and I'll just fast forward ahead. I'm, next week, I'm going to talk about using radishes with wheat, which is kind of a concept similar to this. Um, but wheat is planted a little later, typically, winter wheat anyway, so their options are a little bit limited. The nice thing about oilseed rape or canola as a cash crop is it's planted usually the end of August. So you have options of various cover crops to plant with it. But this has really taken off. This is, I'm certainly not going to say it's mainstream over there, but it's it's not rare anymore. It's done typically. And I, I just think it's another lesson that 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 clearly supports the act of diversity and how important it is. And we need to continue to think about that, how we can do it in our particular crop rotations, whatever we're doing. Um, the other aspect that was kind of drilled home to me was the companion cropping, which is, in this case, this is a little different than what I just shared. That was at the beginning. Uh, here is a scenario where you can see buckwheat is, is kind of on the top part of the picture, and underneath it is oilseed rape. This was an oilseed rape field that was harvested as oilseed rape for cash crop. What you're seeing growing here is the volunteers. After the oilseed rape was harvested in the end of August, uh, this is one of Frederick's fields, they went in and planted buckwheat. And he has done this a couple times, and uh, it doesn't work every time, but he is going to be harvesting the buckwheat uh, in, a week, in a couple weeks. And then because this, the volunteer rate of growth of the, of the oilseed rape was, was good enough that he's going to grow a second crop back to back, but he didn't plant it. So it's kind of like harvesting back to back. Now, because of rotation reasons, that's all he's going to allow it to do it. And it doesn't work out this way, but this is under that category of being flexible. And this, this, this stood out to me on this trip where, you know, we can think about our best laid plans for rotations and everything, but it just made me more aware. We always have to create opportunities and and, and understand flexibility. And I'm, I'm talking about this in the context of our cash crops and cover crops because, you know, you know, any of you who know me, I always say treat your cover crops like your cash crops. And uh, I just think we need to continue to think that way and look at our whole farm, look at our whole farm and what we do for opportunities of how to grow things. And I know this is really stretching for like a, a you know, a kind of a pure corn bean farmer. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to stretch us and say we need to be thinking uh, more and more how we integrate multiple species of not only cover crops, but also cash crops as well and taking advantage of this. Now, you know, you always got to push the pencil and, and, and how this all works. But here's a guy who's been doing this. This is Frederick. He's been doing it for almost 25 years. So again, a lot of experience and this doesn't work all the time, but it's about being uh, ready for an opportunity. Um, another farm that I was on was testing the between no till and conventional till. And again, a little, it's, it's kind of interesting to me to see this. Because, you know, personally, I'm, I'm a no-till farmer, but some farmers need to have that transition. They need to test it in their own farm. Happens to be a field here that the no-till looked pretty good. 
I won't say that the no-till always looked good everywhere. Um, there's a lot of learning curve as well. But there you can kind of see the difference of, of a stand there. The no-till side looked pretty good. However, the no-till happens to attract wild pigs because there's more earthworms there. There's more uh, chaff and more maybe leftover uh, seeds to eat. This is a problem. Um, and it's a, it's a big problem. I, I saw fields that were fenced off with low fences with electric just to try to keep the wild pigs out. It's a no-till problem. Uh, not, not all the time associated with no-till, but it is a challenge. Um, and actually on Frederick's farm, he's, he's trying to line up local hunters to be able to systematically um, I mean, he's going to allow them to come on his farm and encourage them to come on his farm. He has put up uh, uh, stands where they can hunt out of and show them to me because it's just it's just a problem. So, you know, no matter where you go, there's challenges. And uh, but you got to try to work around them. And uh, that's what agriculture is. So this is just some of the challenges that uh, at least I don't have to deal with. Uh, my, my challenge is more with deer sometimes. Now, um, uh, kind of heading back a little bit here to the oilseed rape crop. Here's a decent picture of fava beans that are growing with oilseed rape. Again, it's a companion crop situation. Uh, this is, again, a popular uh, mix to, to be able to do this. The fava beans is going to give some nitrogen to the, 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 the cash crop and, you know, help shade out some maybe winter annual weeds and so forth. So, this was a couple weeks uh, planted, a couple, couple weeks ago planted. Another thing is just as uh, we see, at least in the circles I'm most familiar with, the, the gradual increase of grazing, the gradual increase of grazing. Again, on Frederick's farm, they had like 50 sheep when I was there uh, three years ago. Now he has a couple groups here. I think they're up to 200 sheep now. Uh, in this case, they were just grazing a waterway. Uh, but he has another farmer that manages it. They have a deal they worked out, uh, and which I find uh, interesting. I, I really like these partnerships that I hear here because typically crop farmers are crop farmers, and cattle guys are cattle guys. And there's there's something to know about each, the nuances of it, and to be good at it. And when you can develop a partnership here of someone who knows animals inside and out, and you know. That, that is just an ideal situation where you can do it. Something that I'm working out myself here on my own farm, working with a neighbor and bringing his uh, beef cows over at some point on my farm. Okay, kind of to wrap up here a little bit, then, uh, you know, if you have any questions, you can start typing them in or get ready to ask me. Uh, what, what, what stood out to me? What cover crops stood out to me? Uh, no particular order here, but I'll, I'm going to list three of them, and one of them is buckwheat. A lot of buckwheat uh, planted on, over the summer, and I, I feel myself I need to relook at that. I, I, I've tested, I've planted it before, uh, just as part of the mix, it, and, and so forth for summer. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, but the other one is fava bean. Now this is a picture of a fava bean in some buckwheat there, but uh, just to familiarize yourself with it. And I, I do know that uh, Derek Axton from Saskatchewan actually grows seeds for this. And uh, I got to get some of that stuff, Derek, from you. We'll talk later. But I, I 
I come back from France, like I we gotta get into this fava bean. That fava bean needs to be used here. And I'm gonna talk a little bit more about slugs in two weeks when I get when I finish up my talk. But they told me that fava beans do not uh, do not provide the the ground cover like a hairy vetch or crimson clover does for slugs. In other words, using five fava beans can maybe reduce slugs. At least that they that's what they think about. So that's interesting to know. Plus, these fava beans, uh, some of them are pretty winter hardy and can survive uh, a, a, a relatively uh, decent winter. Uh, just a lot of interest I have in these fava beans. I, I feel like uh, it's something we need to uh, check more about. The other thing is uh, Phasalia. My goodness, every time I come back from Europe, I just see Phasalia all over the place. Uh, it's such a good crop for soil building and, and pollinators. I mean, it's it's just a cinch to get a picture of a bee on it. It's not hard to do. There's so many around. And just to see purple fields uh, like this and just to see – Phasalia is, is pretty much in – I'm not saying it's standard, but it's pretty much in a lot of the, lot of the, um, lot of the mixes. So um, I had one farmer tell me it's his favorite cover crop. Uh, somewhat challenging to grow for seed. Uh, that being said, their, their cost per acre is at both fava beans and Phasalia is about half of what we pay, and I think that's part of our problem right now. It's a little on the expensive side. I'm hoping that once demand comes up, more people will grow it and we can get the cost of the seed down that is more uh, available to use So for us. So, yeah, and to wrap it up, as as any any of you know that have been to France or know uh, that uh, the French love their wine, and I got to tell you, I, I was there eight days, and I did not miss one lunch or, or dinner without being served wine, plus – at the end of the field day, someone invariably comes out with their jug of homemade brew. So this is just ending the day right in France, uh, just standing around and and chatting. That's one of the things I, I do appreciate uh, about the French culture, uh, coming from more of an American perspective. When it's three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon, everyone's heading out. A lot of times we would stay till six thirty, seven o'clock, and uh, and just stand around the last four, five, six people and just talk. So I just really enjoyed that. And if you ever get a chance to go uh, and you want some cover crop uh, things to see, let me know, and I will point you in the right direction. So next week I want to talk a little bit more about slug management. Also, I learned some pretty cool things, I thought, for cover, plot, cover crop plot designs, setting up cover crops to, to really look at mixes and look at different species. And then uh, I want to put spend quite a bit of time on equipment before we come on here today. We were talking about this with some of us, and I'll just show you some pictures of I was at a I was at a one day show that they had this equipment there. Upper left hand side is a roller. Uh, if you look at it closely, it can be adjusted to go in row, and actually you can seed cover crops with this roller. If you look in the front there, you can see the deflector plates. Uh, I'm going to show you more pictures of this next. Or you can, uh, you see the hydraulic cylinder there. You can offset the whole second bar to do a 100% roll if you want to roll cover crops. Very interesting design I'd never seen before. On the right side, you'll see one of the angle slot drills. Going to be talking a lot about that next week. I, of the, at, at this, at this, um, uh, at this event that I was at, there was four angle slot drills there where they, where the angle of the drill, of the drill is, 
is um, at, at a at a angle that engages us all easier. You can see another one at the bottom. Actually, I do have a better picture here. Here's a nice graphic of uh, of the Sly the Sly brand uh, of an angle slot drill. So I'll be talking a lot more about that in two weeks. I plan not next week, but two weeks to talk about some of those innovations there with equipment. Uh, next week, I want to talk about adding radishes to cash grain wheat for yield increases. I'll tell you right off the bat, this doesn't happen all the time, yield increases, but sometimes it does. And for the cost of a less than a bushel of wheat, why not add two pounds of radish and get some of this companion cropping effect for uh, at least earlier planted wheat. Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about next week. So, um, I see uh, Don posted a question here uh, that I'll answer. Any of you else, I'm going to unmute you all um, now so you can ask questions. Uh, Don said he was at South Dakota State University last week. They are renting their cover crop for summer grazing, $1.80 per cow per day, and they put it up for bids. Um, guys are really disappointed when you not get the bid. See, that's that's really cool. To me, that's ideal. When that can happen, uh, it's just farmers working together because it's a win-win, clearly. And it, it goes to say that um, using this uh, this tactic of grazing and cover cropping is takes it up to a new level. So, uh, Derek, I see you got your mic on. Do you have a question or a comment? Oh no, sorry, I just was listening. Okay, oh that's okay. Um, anyone else? Just turn your mic on and, and ask the question. Anything about France, and then I'll open it up for any question at all. Uh, yeah, yeah. How many days uh, before the buckwheat decides to put try to make seed from planting? Um, I'll be open to help from others, but I think six weeks you can have viable seed. It's very quick and very, very quick, and that that can be a concern for some people especially if you're organic, uh, that it can reseed quickly. So you have to decide how to manage it. For others, it's like a, it's like a gift. Uh, so six weeks, I'd be open to anyone else that has a comment on that, but that's been my experience. And does it kill out with frost? Oh, yeah, easy. It kills when the first frost shows up. Uh, I've heard people claim jokingly that at 36 degrees, it's dead. Now, it's a little overstatement, oh. but, yes, it kills very easily. So, that, so, that, okay, so, so in that case, in your in your case, the only time you would ever use it, probably in June, because it would be dead by now yeah. based on what you said. Yeah, because we, we always usually get a first whiff of frost in uh, about the 10th is our average, 10th of yeah. September. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Lauren, you have a comment, question. Uh, back to the buckwheat, I seen something interesting yesterday in my relay companion field. Yep. Where it's interseeded in with the soybeans, it's mature already. Yep. And where it's solid-seeded solid uh, straight buckwheat, it's uh, nice and green yet. You say the soybeans are or the buckwheat? The beans and the buckwheat are almost mature. Yeah. And and on the there's one end where there was no soybeans. Yep. I, I just drilled straight buckwheat there. Yep. That wheat is solid green yet. Hmm. Now I've got a question, Lauren. Is that mature buckwheat going to be a problem 
separating out of your soybeans? Uh, we'll find out when we combine. I mean, we're, we're right. going to have a frost sooner or later, so I'm, wait, I'm waiting for the frost right. to combine. Right. Well, you know, that may or may not be a problem. It depends on your market for your beans. Um, I'll just mention something, too, on that note that I uh, probably should talk about this next or two weeks when, it, when we circle back around here is uh, growing the multi-species cover crops and then uh, separating the seed out later on. That's a that's a, another fascinating uh, uh, subject that I think we need to look look a little more at. So, any other questions from anybody? Chris? Yeah, yeah, I have a question uh, for Derek on the fava beans. Um, uh, I guess that uh, you're doing um, spring seeded, uh, Derek. Yeah, no, we we see them in the spring. We've never had them over winter here. Okay, uh, how early and can they take uh, some late frost? How early can you push you know, planting those? Well, yeah, they're a little bit different in the sense of a bean. I don't even know if they're classified as a as a warm season. Like we seed them early here in the cold soils, and they seem to do fine. You know, they have more frost tolerance than like a soybean or a you know edible bean. From what we've seen here, I'll just okay. add, so I'll just add probably, to uh, Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, you could probably seed them around like oat seeding time. Yeah, I'd say that'd be just right. Okay. And I agree, Chris. I'll just follow up. I have grown fava beans. Um, I have never really. I've grown them early in the spring. I would say they're similar to most peas. Or like we used the example of oats, both when you can seed them in the spring and also when you uh, how how long they will tolerate fava beans. I would say will tolerate mid twenties easily. Um, so and so they'll grow they'll grow into the fall pretty long until you get a couple nights that get down into the teens. And that's what's nice about fava beans is they have a little bit more of a, a longer window. I like to say they're like the fall version of sun hemp. Because they're upright and they're a legume, and I like fava beans too, just for that reason. They're a different type of legume. Uh, they're in that they're upright. They're, they have a strong stalk. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I, Steve. Yeah, I, I've grown a few of them, but yeah, we've always planted them at the wrong time. Like when yeah. we were doing some of the interseeding, we had them in. Mm-hmm. But I've also, you know, done them, but it was uh, uh, towards the later part of after corn and soybean planting. Mm-hmm. So we were hitting the wrong, wrong timing of that. So, yeah. yeah. What, what I was told in France is, and they have a similar, um, uh, similar uh, frost, frost dates as I do. Uh, and also, uh, but they don't get quite as cold as some areas because they're surrounded by ocean. Uh, generally speaking, they, they don't get down to, to, to zero Fahrenheit very often. Uh, but that being said, if they plant, they said if they plant fava beans two inches deep in the fall in October, late October, they generally survive. They said the key is to plant them deep uh, if you want winter survivability. And that was the easiest for them. It was better to harvest them for seed than spring planted because they beat the insects. The insects, fava beans can, can attract some insects. I found that an issue here in my farm. But I'm going to try to grow some in the fall here uh, just to see if they'll survive my winter or not. So, 
I don't know. I'm just going to play around with it a little bit. So, But I know for Derek's situation in, South, in Saskatchewan, he's simply too cold to plant fava beans in the fall. Any more comments on fava beans or anything in France? Questions? Okay. Um, actually, uh, uh, Derek Axton, you're... <laughs> You have the you have the distinction of being the line that is uh, that is echoing. So if you could turn yours off and then only turn it on again if you want to ask a question, or, or I'll just mute you. But uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> just for whatever reason, just wanted to pass that along. So okay, I will uh, let's open it up here. Anything you guys? Any other question at all you want to ask about um, cover crops? I would be uh, willing to entertain that now, or we can talk about it. I also see that Don said he saw a lot of flax in South Dakota last week. Have I uh, used flax as a cover crop? Um, and the answer is I have tried it, and I was actually have again. It's one of those crops I'm kind of interested in again. Uh, as as uh, Derek and his wife uh, Tannis pointed out a couple weeks ago, flax has really high mycorrhizal uh, abilities, uh, promoting that. So. There's, there's a few of these cover crops that I have kind of checked off 10, 15 years ago when I tried them. Now I'm kind of bringing them back in to look at. So I think flax should be looked at again. But, um, yeah, go ahead, Lauren. I see you're on. Uh, one question I've been having, we've seen down at Chris, is there, when you talked about the companions, is anybody doing uh, research on which crops are mutually beneficial to each other? Yeah, I, I, that question's to everyone. Um, are you talking, when you say crops mutually beneficial, are you opening that up to both cash crops and cover crops or synergistic effects between a cover crop before a cash crop? Help me out a little bit, Lauren. What exactly are you asking? Well, you know, the garden gardener books that a guy always looks at, they, they focus on, you know, the following crop, but at Chris's there we could see, you know, differences, the crop plant itself versus a companion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it looks like that should be something we're paying attention to. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, my, uh, and I'll just say, you know, just a, a little tiny anecdotal evidence. Uh, I had a uh, field of uh, corn. If you heard my, you know, webinars early in the spring that we had some pretty high slug damage. And I had a, a variety of uh, squash that I wanted to isolate to save seeds from. And I thought, why don't I just plant it out there in that little area where the, uh, where the slugs were so bad? It was like a couple hundred yards away from any other pumpkins I had. I wanted to have, you know, try to get a pure, um, uh, uh, pollination on it. And, the corn actually came back stronger than I thought, but there's little squash vined up into the corn, and it was amazing the yield that they seemed to put on. Now, again, no measurements. It's just that looking at it, it's like, wow, we're seeing something here. How can we leverage that in a large scale? I think that's a question you're asking, Lauren, right? Yep. And I, I don't, you know, I, I just, I'm at the point, to answer your question, Lauren, there's something there. Are there something there? How can we leverage that in commercial agriculture? Um, I think that's the question we're at. I, I don't have much of an answer other than knowing there's something there, 
And I think it's interesting, too, and I agree with you. You look at some of these gardening books, and uh, I've seen some of this stuff. I've read it. Uh, you know, we read about the, the three sisters, the, the corn, the squash, and the bean growing together. Well, in a, in a way, we do that with mixed species cover crops. Um, and, and I'll just give you a quick example. I alluded to it before, planting oilseed rape, hairy vetch, and peas, plant them together, harvest them all, and they're easily separatable. And they're getting higher yields for cover crop seed production by planting those three species together. The cool thing is, is the canola or the rape holds up the peas and the hairy vetch, allows it to function better. Those two provide nitrogen for the, the oil seed rape, and the seeds are different enough in size that it's fairly easy to have a good separation on them. That's the kind of thing, if we could adapt that even broader into other, even, even cash crops, what we call cash crops today. To me, that's the stuff I think about when I'm out in the tractor. And I'm sure you do the same, Lauren, right? And a couple of us over here. That's, to me, that's, that's the future some way, somehow. Um, so, uh, does anyone else have some comments on that? I know, Chris, you're working on stuff. I see, uh, Brent Jones is on here. Uh, any other comments you guys have in that? Or Tim? Don? Go ahead, Derek. Yeah, well, it, um, like in for the, like, you know, the dry areas in the west here, if you could figure out you could plant your cover crop at the same time as your cash crop and because in some of the areas your moisture is really limiting but if you could yeah. plant companions that really help your crop grow and you know that would that would open up a lot of uh, opportunity yep well um no you're exactly right i i think this is a topic that that we need to keep keep ruminating on and start trying some stuff. Uh, that's where I'm at. And um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Anyone else? Anyone else have any questions for today? Okay. Well, thanks again, everybody for your participation. I appreciate it. Uh, like I said, next week we'll be back talking about putting some wheat, uh, you putting some radishes in with wheat. And, um, yeah, I encourage you to check out Facebook. Feel free to post stuff you know and, um, and, um, and, and questions and stuff. That's been fun to do. But, um, until next week, have a great week and, uh, we'll see you then. Thanks.